we are now talking about discipleship here, verses 21 to 28 of Matthew 16. Uh, Please stand with me to read the Word of God. We'll pull it up on the screen for you, or you can find it in your Bibles, Matthew 16, 21 to 28. We stand to read the Word of God because uh, we feel that these are God's words. They're reverent, they're important, and also we think it's a sign of God moving in and through us as people in Cleveland. So here we are. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. Let's pray. God, we thank you for an ability to meet you this morning as we gather corporately for church, a time that we can set aside our worries and our cares and our work and be here invested in learning and growing in our relationship with you. And so God, right now, I just pray for a peace of mind. I pray for strength for us that are weary, that we can hear your words and we can learn from them and grow from them. And we will learn this morning what it means to be a disciple. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, World War II began mainly due to Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany attempting to purify the world with a master race, the Aryans. It was built a lot on racism, specifically anti-Semitism. And it riddled Europe as the Nazis killed, imprisoned, and, and did all sorts of other tortures to anybody that opposed this fascist totalitarian state. Through this devastation, we talked about last week how Satan tries to destroy the church. We could see this time being a big time that Satan thought maybe he won, maybe he did beat the church. But despite all the bad that came from this, the church never died, never died at all. God raised people up. He raised people up to preach the good news and to share the truth of Jesus Christ. And why Jesus died for us. Famous theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one such person. He died when he was 39. He got killed in a concentration camp. He was executed. He was hanged. And this was only a couple years after he was arrested for his, his beliefs. He did not agree with what the Nazis believed because it was not biblical. It was not what Jesus taught. So he was arrested, killed. Only a couple weeks after he was killed, the Allied forces freed everybody in the camp that he was in. Only a three... Only three weeks after he got killed, Hitler actually killed himself. Bonhoeffer died a martyr, but he left in this life incredible truths about Jesus Christ that he lived out to the end of his death. And his book still lives strong as a classic in our Christian theology and our thought. It was released in 1937. It's called Discipleship. Maybe you've seen it called The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer's theology of costly discipleship eventually led to his death. And this death that he died because it only proved even stronger why he wrote what he did and why he believed what he did. 
He made a distinction in this book in discipleship about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. And I'm talking about him this morning because I want us to dive into the text to look in with a background of knowing what discipleship can lead to and how significant discipleship is. Discipleship following Jesus, not just discipleship from one to another, which we see in life, which we see in church, which we want as a church to be discipling one another, but to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So the difference between cheap grace, costly grace, let's look at Bonhoeffer's uh, quotes, a couple of them. One regarding cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus. So cheap grace teaches that you've sinned, but you're forgiven, so you can live your life how you are and just fit Jesus inside of that. That's what cheap grace is. So that's not discipleship as Jesus has called it on us as disciples. Bonhoeffer then compares this with costly grace. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, which we'll talk about. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. End quote, Bonhoeffer. He claimed that Christianity's popularity caused it to become secularized. And we see this in our culture today in Cleveland, that people don't want costly grace. They want cheap grace, the grace that says I'm forgiven, but I don't actually have to change my life. Being a disciple of Jesus doesn't change my life. I live the way that I always do anyway. But it's not cheap. Obedience to Christ is lost if we live this way. And that's not true grace. That's not costly grace. That's not the grace that Bonhoeffer died for. That's not the grace that Jesus died for. So we're here this morning attempting to understand a little bit more what it means to receive and live out costly grace that Jesus has given us. Attempting to understand a little bit better how to stay away from cheap grace. Our text today teaches us what it means to be a disciple a disciple of Jesus, and costly grace is the key point to being a disciple as Jesus had called us to live out a Christian life. Whether you realize it or not, Christian, you are a disciple. If you have converted, if you have claimed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're a disciple. So there's characteristics of discipleship in this text. We're going to dive into them. There's quite a few. Sometimes things are nice and clean and you are taught three different points that you can remember, and they all start with the same letter, so you can remember it later. It's not like that today. I apologize in advance. So we're going to look at these characteristics. There's quite a few. The first one we're going to get to is understanding. So before we get to that again, we are here in Matthew. Matthew is divided into three different sections. The first section you can see is the presentation of Jesus the Messiah, chapter 1 of Matthew. This is Jesus being brought into the world. And then from chapters 4 to 16, we see the public ministry of Jesus the Messiah. Then finally, at the end, the first verse that we're starting with here, verse 21, to the end of the book, 
we see is the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is the last section. And that's why I said Peter's conversion is kind of the crux. It's the turning point. That's the climax of that public ministry of Jesus. And now, since he has converted, we now see the next section here, the last section that we're getting into. So verse 21, we read that Jesus began to show the disciples about his impending death. As an English teacher, when you're teaching kids and students how to write, you tell them the good, good writers don't just tell somebody something. You don't just tell the reader, it was a nice day. No, you tell the reader, I walked outside and I felt the breeze blow by my face while the sun peeked through the clouds overhead and the fresh smell of grass was in the distance as I stood on the sand and heard the waves crashing. Now you understand it a little bit better. That's better than just telling me it was a nice day. You're showing me through plain language. It's now vivid. I can see it. Things are clear. So that's one of the reasons Jesus is speaking plainly. He's showing them these things. He's showing them these things because they need to progress in their knowledge of Jesus. So the first point, the first characteristic of discipleship is understanding. They need to understand more about who Jesus is. Up to this point, Jesus has not expressly and plainly shown them how he's going to die. He hadn't done this because they weren't ready yet. But as they grew in their knowledge and as they grew in their faith in him, as we saw through their conversion, their accepting, yes, Jesus, you are the Christ, now we can move forward. So this is normal, and we should expect this. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in regards to our own personal conversion, how every single one of us converts on very limited knowledge of who Jesus is. It doesn't make it any less real, but it's very limited knowledge. We're expected to grow and learn more about our faith. Yes, it's always established and grounded in Jesus as Savior. That is our salvation, but we should grow from here. Hebrews 6.1. Therefore, it will let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying, again, a foundation of repentance from dead works of faith toward God. Yes, the foundation, again, is Jesus. That's not forgotten, but we should move on from that. Not forgetting that, but we shouldn't constantly be struggling with salvation. We need to move forward. So Peter has now converted. He has now seen Jesus as Christ. And now he has to learn more about God. He has to mature in his faith a little bit more and see God's plan rather than his own. Similar to seeing how Jesus shares more to his disciples as they mature, as they grow in their faith, it's the same for us. This happens to us when we read the word of God. As we read a book of the Bible or a chapter of the Bible or a verse in the Bible and all of a sudden it's real. I've read that before, but I never felt it like I do now. That's how God works. That's how we grow in our understanding of God through the Bible. Think back to 15 years ago. If, if you're a believer, think back to 15 years ago if, you're, if you've been a believer for 15 years. I mean, for me, that puts me at age. And so that, you know, I'm a kid 15 years ago. I knew Jesus was Lord. Have I actually grown in my knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is? Can I actually articulate better to somebody the Trinity? I think I can. I think I know more. But it's hard to realize when you didn't know more. So it has to be a growing understanding of who Jesus is. This comes through getting in the Word. It comes through prayer. It comes through being with each other. It comes through church. So what is it the disciples are learning about God? How is God, how is Jesus here maturing their faith What is he exactly sharing with them? Usually he shared in parables with the crowds, and here he is just with the disciples speaking clearly. 
about how he's going to die. And the disciples know that the elders, the Pharisees, the scribes, that they don't get along with Jesus, that they don't like him, but they don't realize he's actually going to be killed by them. And so they're learning about God's plan being better than their own. This news was so shocking to them that Peter, Peter who's maybe still riding high about being called the rock on which to build a church, Petros on the Petra, as we talked about, he decides that he has a better answer for Jesus, a better solution. So he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. He calls him out in verse 22. He tells him what he thinks he needs to hear. Far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen to you. Jesus, you told me the plan. You made it clear to me what you want me to do. You made it clear to me what should happen. But I don't think you're right, Jesus. I think I have a better plan. I know how to do this. And what I don't want anybody in here to think is when we learn about characters in the Bible, I don't want you to be separated from them. We are right in their shoes. Just because we know how this ends for Peter and we can look at Peter and say, duh, why would you rebuke Jesus? The same thing happens in our lives. And we can look back on our lives and see when we did it and we're wrong. But don't forget that even in your present state, there's still room to grow. So we need to learn that understanding more of God is important in our maturity as a believer. Jesus responds, 23. He responds immediately. As soon as he is tempted, he speaks truth to the situation. So the second characteristic of discipleship is immediate action against temptation. The moment that we are tempted, we should speak this temptation out. We should speak truth to it and not let it work in our minds, not begin to rationalize this temptation. Oh, well, maybe Peter's right. Maybe I shouldn't die. I mean, obviously it was hard for him. God, take this cup from me, he says later. But that's temptation because it is keeping Jesus from fulfilling the will of the Father, from dying for us. Ephesians 5, that which is darkness should be brought to light so it's visible and plain to see. So when we are tempted, bring it to light right away. Don't let it hide. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, immediately. So from the rock on which to build the church, Peter is now a hindrance to the foundation of the church. Peter goes from being a rock to Satan in an instant. Peter goes from speaking truth to forgetting the truth of who Jesus is. He's stricken with pride and with selfishness. Maybe a part of him thinks, oh, well, I had the keys and they were given to me by Jesus. And if Jesus is dead, I'll no longer have the keys and I won't be a part of this kingdom that he's making me a big part of. Selfishness, pride is echoed throughout this text constantly. And Jesus responds almost identically to Matthew 4.10 when Satan tempts him in the desert. He says, be gone, Satan. And why such a strong response to his own disciple? We see his qualifiers here at the end of 23. You are a hindrance. Jesus Christ is trying to do something none of us can even fathom. Jesus is going to lay down his life for you. He's going to separate himself from the Trinity, from the Father. He's going to die. He's going to conquer hell. But he's going to separate for three days. He'll be there. And he's doing that. He's completely undeserving. He hasn't sinned. He's done no wrong. And he's doing it for you. He's dying for me. So why was Peter called Satan? Well, it's my fault. It's your fault. He's calling him Satan because Peter was stopping the salvation story that Jesus was bringing to us, the redemptive story of Jesus Christ dying for our sins. So while Peter tells Jesus to save his life, Jesus still plans on spending it and becoming an atonement for us anyway. Jesus sees anything that is preventing our salvation as evil. 
That's what caused Peter to go from rock to Satan. On top of being a hindrance, Jesus tells Peter that he has his mindset backwards. There's two things we can have our minds on. Things of the world or things of God. Things of God or things of man. So the first one, first characteristic, again, understanding. The second one, immediate action against temptation. The third one we have, setting your mind on God. It's not easy to set your mind on God. Not in this world. We only have two options. It's either on God or on man. They clash, and it's not easy to do. Discipleship is not easy. The things of God are the things concerning his will and his glory. And let's look at what the things of man are so we know what not to do. 1 John 2, 15, 7. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The things of man are everywhere. The things of man are what our flesh pursues. Because we're broken creatures filled with sin, we have this innate sense of selfishness and pride. The pride of life, the pride maybe in possessions, as your footnote says in your Bible. It's what we see in Cleveland. It's what brings people to cities in the first place, is being able to pursue all these pleasures. People don't just come to Cleveland for LeBron James. Yes, you heard that name today. We're happy he's coming back. But that's not the only reason people come to the city. They come to the city because there's so many things available here. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Many people come to the city. Maybe they have a good job. They can make a lot of money. They can get a lot of good stuff and show it off to people, their possessions. People come to the city because there's more here than other places. There's more opportunity for free lawlessness of morality when there's other people here that are wanting to live the same way. So it makes it an appealing place to go if you don't know how to fill that void in your heart. We've talked about this, that God-sized hole in your heart that will only be filled by God. But if we don't know him yet, we're going to try to fill it with things of the world. The selfish desires of the flesh, the eyes, possessions. Even when it doesn't seem to be selfish, if God isn't calling you to it, if it's not obedience to God, then you're living in sin and it is selfish. If God has told you to go somewhere, do something, and you're still not doing it, you are being disobedient. Even if it looks good to other people, it's not good if God hasn't called you to it. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 3, 5 to 17. Look here at what God tells us is things of man. What God tells us are things of God. Specific words here. I'm not going to read it all. I'll read the specific words. And if you feel a tug on your heart, if you feel something, ooh, that's me, approach that. Write it down. Pray through it later. Put to death, therefore, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, wrath of God is coming. You must also put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie. Those are all things that we need to get rid of once we have confessed Jesus as Lord, once we are in this discipleship relationship with Jesus. Those things have to go. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I am not telling you to change your life right now and then come to Jesus. I'm telling you that with Jesus, you can get through these things. So put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If you have a complaint with one another, forgive each other as the Lord forgave you. Put on all these, especially love. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. 
dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns. We did that this morning. All these things, these are the things of God. These are how we can set our, th- our minds on the things of God. We don't need to just pursue compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and meekness, and patience, but we do need to pray that God will give that to us because our natural battle in this life is against ourselves. It is against sin within ourselves. And what God is calling us to, setting your, thing on, your mind on things of God, this is supernatural. The next characteristic of discipleship is to deny yourself. If anyone is going to come after me, Jesus says in the next verse, there's a universal call for anybody coming after Jesus. It's for you this morning. Anyone that is going to be a disciple from now until they die, for anyone that claims Jesus as Lord, they must deny themselves, Jesus says. So we're talking about selfishness that we feel. We have this uncanny commitment to ourselves and this selfish pride. We're pursuing the things of the world. We're doing anything we can to please ourselves. That's what the devil wants. The devil wants that because that's what he did too. Isaiah 14, 13 to 14. You said in your heart, speaking of Satan, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is the same one that tempts Jesus later in the desert to bow down to him. What crazy amounts of pride Satan has to do this. And what crazy amounts of pride we now have since we're born sinners and broken in this world. And so we need to deny ourselves and live as Christ lived. Christ denied himself his entire life on earth when he took on flesh. He never sinned. He was perfect at denying this pride and the selfishness that is in humans He was God. He was perfect. That's why he was able to be the atonement for our sins. So when Christ calls us to deny ourselves, we are to deny that selfish part of us that Jesus denied his entire life. So understanding, immediate action against temptation. Set your mind on God. Deny yourself. The next thing, take up your cross. You are to bend over and pick up this massive, heavy, weighty death instrument and carry it with you the rest of your life. When Jesus said this, it wasn't just theoretical for the disciples. 30,000 people died on the cross of crucifixions during Jesus' lifetime. The cross was material, it was real. It wasn't a symbol for them like it is a symbol for us now. But it is also a metaphor. In Luke's account, 9.23, he does use the word daily. So Jesus wasn't telling his disciples, carry this wood every day and that walks you straight to heaven. No, that's not it. It is a metaphor. He's telling them anything that causes suffering... All afflictions and every trouble that you have for righteousness' sake is a cross that needs to be carried. It's not just any hardship that you have. It's not that boss at work that you don't get along with. It's not that guy that drives in the left lane slower than everybody else, which blows my mind. That is not what Jesus, that is not my cross. Your cross are these struggles and these hardships that are for Jesus' sake, for righteousness' sake. Henry, Matthew Henry put it this way, the way to view the cross that we're to carry. Don't say this is an evil and I must bear it because I cannot help it. That's playing a victim. Don't do that. But this is an evil and I will bear it because it shall work for my good. When we rejoice in our afflictions and glory in them, then we take up the cross. It's not easy. Discipleship is not easy, but it is good. 
The next characteristic of discipleship, follow Christ. Wherever he goes, a disciple of Christ needs to follow. Jesus went to the cross. Follow him to the cross. Jesus went to his death. Follow him to your death. And he didn't stop there. He is at the right hand of the Father. And we will follow him someday to heaven. We need to follow Christ everywhere we go. Verse 25, then, we're presented with a paradox. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So another characteristic of a disciple following Jesus is death. Lose your life. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me and die. Stop finding your life in earthly possessions. Lose your life in this world and find your life in Christ, the one true treasure. Don't save your life, this paradox says. What does that mean anyway, to save your life? How can you save your own life? Trying to defend yourself, defend your life, trying to spare it or protect it. Trying to always be right, being unwilling to sacrifice for Jesus. Saving your life is sacrificing your time for God. If you're trying to save your life, instead of giving your time to God, you're going to give it to yourself. Instead of mending that relationship with somebody, instead of actually talking about that argument you had with your spouse, you're going to watch YouTube videos. Maybe saving your life is just watching TV when you get home at night, rather than praying. We need to die to ourselves. Everything in ourselves naturally doesn't want to do the things of God. You need to die to yourself. So our characteristics that we see, understanding, immediate action against temptation, set your mind on God, deny yourself, take your cross, follow Jesus, and die. There are seven characteristics that we learn about. These characteristics lead you to costly grace, not cheap grace, that won't change your life. This is costly grace that these lead us to in discipleship. A life that Jesus is calling you to. And it leads to something. The final three verses of the text remind us why being a disciple is important. 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Can anyone do that anyway? Can anybody take over the whole world? Absolutely not. It's not possible. It's a hyperbole. It's an exaggerated statement used to make a point. We've had plenty of people try to take over the world. We talked about one of them earlier who ultimately ended his own life. Hitler. Nobody can gain the whole world. And even if they could, what profit is it to them? What does it matter if they gain the whole world, if they lose their soul? What profit is it to Satan that he left his creator? Is Satan now happy that he can do some stuff in the time that he wants? He can do what he wants, when he wants? He's absolutely not. Revelation 12, 12, he's filled with anger and rage anytime somebody crosses him. He knows his time is short. The soul that lives on, the soul which is immortal, the soul which comes alive and is destined for eternal life if we've accepted Jesus and and come alive in our spirit, the soul that lives on in heaven, or the soul that ultimately lives on in hell and is damned forever if we don't accept Jesus. What can a man give in return for his soul? What can he give? What is the soul worth anyway? That's a real question. What is the soul worth? Well, it depends on who's answering. I'll give you two answers. To God, your soul is worth his son's life. To God, your soul is so precious that even though you were born a sinner, he still found a way to get you back to him, to mend that relationship. And that was to kill, and that was that his own son died. He died, he resurrected, 
And now we have atonement for our sins because Jesus was perfect. And God was willing to lose his begotten son for those three days while he conquered hell and then raised again, completing again the Trinity that we believe in. This is why I believe in Jesus. Our life, your life right now, it might feel so short. You're 70, 80, 90 years, maybe 100 on earth. It might feel short, but it's not insignificant. God cares about your life right now. And he sent Jesus to die for you so that you can live your life right now differently as a disciple with costly grace, not cheap grace. That's what the soul of yours is worth to God. What's the soul worth to the world? What's your soul worth to Satan? Nothing. Nothing at all. The world doesn't do anything with your soul. Satan wants you to think that the world is all there is. And if you're going to be happy, you need to get as much of the world as you can right now. And if you're getting what you can of the world and you're not happy, well, you're not getting enough of it. So you better keep getting some more. And why? Is that because he wants your soul? No, he just doesn't want your soul to be with God. He doesn't want you to have eternal life. He doesn't want you to have life on earth and life more abundantly now through Jesus. Your soul is worth nothing to Satan. It is worth everything to God. The Son of Man is coming back, verse 27. He will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus came to earth as Savior the first time. But he's coming back again, and he's coming back later with eyes like fire, with robe dipped in blood, with a sword coming from his mouth to strike down the nations. He will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God, Revelations 19 tells us. If you can make that into a tattoo, I want it. When Jesus comes back, it's going to look a little different. He'll repay each person for what he's done. He'll look at their soul. So what is your soul? What is your soul state right now? Have you been indwelt with the Spirit because you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, which now allows your immortal soul to live in heaven forever? Or have you not made that yet? Are you not yet a disciple of Jesus? It's your first application today. What camp is your soul in? Is it God's? Is it living for Jesus? Have you accepted cheap grace or costly grace, which has actually changed your life now that you know Jesus? Are you being a faithful disciple? Are you understanding? Are you taking immediate action against temptation? Are you setting your mind on God? Are you denying yourself? Are you taking up your cross? Are you following Jesus? Have you died It's the only way you will live for eternity. With these characteristics of discipleship in mind, think about how you're applying these to your life, every aspect of your life, not just to your conversion. I think it's easy to look at our conversion and think, yes, when I made the decision to follow Jesus, I knew I had to die to myself. But it's not just in conversion. It's through the rest of our life too. Think about it in prayer. How's your prayer life? Do you wake up in the morning and Decide to snooze instead of pray, because that's easier. It feels a lot like dying when you don't hit snooze and you get up and pray. How about your Bible reading? Are you able to take time away from other things so that you are in the Word, so you're able to understand more? How about church life? Have you found a church that you can commit to, that you can be a part of a body? It doesn't have to be this one, but somewhere. Are you building up the body? 
It's not all for you. It's also what you can do with other people. How's your church life? Are you dying to yourself in that? What about evangelism? You've been praying that you can share about Jesus with your coworker because you know they're going through a divorce right now. And so if you could talk to them and tell them about Jesus, it's great. And then here they are. They come to you and they ask you about life. And you don't know if you want to talk about Jesus now. It feels a lot like dying. Put my pride on the line. He might never talk to me again. How's evangelism? What about your marriage? How's that looking? I don't know if marriage requires sacrifice one to another. I think it does. A lot. All the time. Constantly. Are we doing that? And if you're not in your relationship, whatever it is, are you preparing yourself for marriage by sacrificing one for another? What about parenting? Kids (laughs) coming into the world. I, I heard it this way, that Jesus blesses us with this ability that, to bring somebody into our lives that is more selfish than ourselves. Those are your kids. We're born that way. I know I was definitely more selfish than my parents, and they died to themselves daily for me. How about your money and your possessions? Are you saving it all for yourself, or are you giving back? Are you investing in the kingdom? All these things we can grow in. And we need to grow in. But it won't change if we don't recognize that it should change. So pray to God. Pray through these aspects. Is our life of discipleship being seen through those parts of our lives? Let's close with this final encouragement from 1 Corinthians. Everything that we're doing here. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain for the Lord. Continue in your life of sanctification and growth as a disciple of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we sit here humbly before you, knowing that we don't live perfect lives, knowing that discipleship is a huge part of our life as a believer, but also knowing it's hard. It is a supernatural battle. And so, God, we pray for your supernatural strength to help us in this battle, to help us grow closer to you as a disciple of Jesus. God, we thank you again this morning for never leaving our side for coming and dying on a cross so that we can live. You paid the ultimate price, and grace cannot be received cheaply. It is costly. And so I pray that each one of us will leave this morning with a better sense of how great that cost was and how blessed we are to now have you and be in a relationship with you. Be with us throughout this week. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.